trust everybody is doing good and just enjoying a great long weekend and uh, sun is out. Take it in today. It's going to be good. Wait for another, you know, 45 minutes before you take it in. Don't leave yet, but go enjoy a great long weekend. So John chapter 7 and what we've been seeing here. Because we're picking it up in verse 37. So we started this last week and we got through the first 36 verses. And what we've been kind of looking at is this Feast of Tabernacles that's been going on. And, and the beginning of chapter 7 is uh, Jesus' brothers are there. And, and they're kind of, you know, chiding him, taunting him, and trying to get him to go down to the Feast of Tabernacles. Thinking, hey, if you're really who you say you are, this is your moment to shine. This is your time to go and proclaim who you are and really get the, the crowds following along with you but of course you know that wasn't Jesus's plan or timing for that he's not coming to try to gather crowds together but to do a work internally in people's hearts and lives and so Jesus sends his brothers off he goes down a little bit later he shows up at Jerusalem and at this point understand as John is writing this here we're in chapter 7 and yet We've already skipped now ahead to like the last six months of Jesus's ministry. So we're, we're moving along. There's been a lot of stuff that Jesus has been doing. People are aware of who Jesus is. People are aware. They've been talking about the things he's been saying, the things he's been doing. And so even now in Jerusalem, where the religious leaders kind of had their headquarters, they're all anticipating Jesus being there. They're waiting for him. They're looking for him. They're like, where's this Jesus? But they're doing so because they want to take him down. They want to take him out. They want to kill Jesus. They're not happy about the things he's been doing and saying. And so they're trying to take him down. So it's all centered around this feast as Jesus comes down. He's been there teaching at this feast. He's been going up to the temple partway through the feast. And he's been sharing. um, And people have just been amazed at who he is. But it's created a lot of kind of division and debate. In fact, in this chapter, here's the things that we were looking at last week. Because this feast was eight days long, long feast. So we saw the beginning of the feast or before the feast, and there was disbelief on the part of his brothers. Then the middle part of the feast, Jesus goes, starts to teach. But there's a lot of debate over, who is this guy? How did he learn all this stuff? How does he speak with such authority? So there's a lot of debate going on about who Jesus really is. But now as we move on into verse 37, we're looking at this last part, the end of the feast, and focusing on this last day of the feast. Day eight. It's an eight-day feast. It's a celebratory feast, a feast of tabernacles. It's a joyous occasion. And so this is one of the, the great feasts that people were really excited about looking forward to. And we'll talk a little bit more about this here. But what we're going to be seeing here today as we break this down even further is we're going to look at this living water that Jesus talks about, verses 37 to 39. The confused worshipers and then the hardened leaders. Those are the things that we're going to be looking at here today. So look at verse 37 with me. And here's what we read there in John 7, verse 37. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, let me just again say it's, it's important right now that we get a little bit of context and background to the Feast of Tabernacles that's taking place and things that are going on. Because remember, this feast is commemorating, it's remembering this great deliverance of Israel out of Egypt, but then not only delivering Israel out of Egypt, but bringing them through the wilderness journey. For 40 years, they're camping out in the desert. God's leading them by that pillar of cloud by day, providing shade from the desert sun, but then a pillar of fire at night to guide and direct them, providing warmth in the coolness of the desert evenings. And so here they are celebrating all these things that God was faithful to do. And so during the Feast of Tabernacles, people would go and they would camp out. They would build these little temporary lean-tos and shelters where everybody would camp out there on the streets or uh, around their homes. And it was just something people looked forward to. They got excited about. They would have the visual reminder all around of their wilderness journey, but how God provided for them. And then we know that God not only provided for them in those ways, but also provided water provided food for them in the wilderness 
just amazing stuff. And so part of that got adopted into into a practice during these feasts. This was something that got added to later on. So here's what would go down during this festival of tabernacles. Well, a priest would go, take a golden pitcher, which held about two pints of water, and he would go down to the pools of Siloam, the pool of Siloam, that, and, and he'd fill it up with water. And then that water was carried back through the water gate. All the while, people are observing the priest doing this march, procession of water, coming back, and they'd all be singing out there, Isaiah 12, verse 3, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And then the water was carried up to the temple altar, out there in the courtyard before the temple, and that water was then poured out around the altar as an offering to God. And while that was being done, the people were singing out the Hallel Psalms, Psalms 113 to Psalm 118. And so as the priests are doing this, people are singing out. They're saying words from Psalm 118, 1, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. And again, um, singing out, Oh, work now then salvation, Psalm 118, verse 25. And then it all kind of culminate with the end of Psalm 118, verse 29, saying, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. This is what people were doing. And as this is happening, the worshipers shouted, they waved these palm branches towards the altar. The whole dramatic ceremony, again, was that vivid thanksgiving for God's good gift of water in the wilderness. And it was kind of an acted prayer of faith for continued rain where they could continue to, to you know, grow their harvest and, and glean from the harvest. Just a memory of the water which sprang from the rock when they traveled to the wilderness. Just a lot of great celebration going on. It's kind of just think of like your, you know, closing ceremonies of the Olympics. A lot of just excitement and, and a lot of neat stuff. Well, this is the Feast of Tabernacles. And on that last day, what was interesting is that this ceremony was kind of doubly impressive because what the priests would do now is they would walk around the altar seven times. Again, kind of a remembrance, reenactment of, of how the, the walls of Jericho came crashing down, God giving them victory, bringing them into the promised land. All of that, just this picture of God's provision through the wilderness, bringing them into that fullness of life in the promised land. But on that last day, the priests didn't retrieve or pour out water. They didn't do the water on this last day, this eighth day, because they were remembering, not remembering, they were now looking forward to when the Messiah would come and lead them now into the fullness of life, the abundant life, when the Messiah would come and and even pour out the Spirit upon His people. So there was a part of it looking back, but there's a part of it looking forward. So that's what took place on the eighth day. Walking around the altar, no water being poured out. And then it's on this day, the eighth day, that we read that Jesus stood up so fittingly and he proclaims, listen, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. They're all for those seven days prior. They're looking, remembering the water being poured out, the great goodness of God. Last day, no water. Here Jesus says, listen, are you thirsty? There's no water here. But come to me. And drink. And I'm going to give you living water. Now listen, we're all quite spoiled when it comes to water, when it comes to satisfying our thirst around here. We have some of the purest water coming right out of our taps all around the world. Like, I mean, we are blessed here. But not only do we have good, pure water coming out of our taps, but we've got an assortment of beverages that we can just go to and crack a cold one. And and by cold one, I mean like, you know, a, a can of bubbly or something like that. Anybody... Had the bubbly yet? One of my favorite drinks right now. Love it. Strawberry. Super good. So it's a carbonated water. Got to try it. It's really good. So anyways, love it. Refreshing. So good. No sugar in it. It's, it's just great. So I'm getting, I'm getting rather thirsty right now just thinking about it. But here's the thing. We don't really know oftentimes what it's like to really go being thirsty. To really struggle with a thirst, or to really experience thirst, because we just got water at disposal, we got an assortment of beverages, we can satisfy that without any problem or difficulty. But remember, all this is going on and happening as they're commemorating their time in the wilderness, when their ancestors were traveling in the desert. In the desert, you don't have this kind of commodity. Water is gold there in the desert. Water means life in the desert. If you're thirsty in the desert, you're dying. That's the reality that's going on here. And Jesus doesn't, you know, give any kind of description 
about this thirst. In other places, he kind of qualified that a little bit. He would say in, in Matthew 5, if anyone hungers and thirsts for righteousness. He doesn't qualify this thirst by saying, listen, if you're thirsty for me, or if you're thirsty for a better fulfillment in life, he doesn't qualify. He just says, are you thirsty? Do you have a thirst? He says, come to me. Because understand that this is just a general thirst that we're dealing with that all people are going to experience apart from Christ. That whole giving water in the desert is such a good metaphor and reality for us because spiritually speaking, this is where we all are apart from a relationship with Jesus. We are in the wilderness. We are all dying without Jesus. So Jesus simply says, if you're thirsty... Come to me and drink. Well, thirsty for what? It doesn't matter. Because whatever you might be having at work in your life that's driving that thirst, it can only be quenched and satisfied through Jesus Christ. It's the only place that you're going to find satisfaction for that thirst. So the invitation is given to come. The one that's thirsting in the the desert... The one that's thirsting in the wilderness that hears about a promise of water, they're going to move towards that with every last bit of strength that they've got because they know that's their only hope. So too, our only hope is in Jesus. Only Jesus can give you water. Only Jesus can give you life. Look at what Jesus promises. Not only will he give you a drink, but he will cause rivers of water to flow in your heart and out of your heart. See, to those that are in the desert, a cup of water is going to be refreshing. It's going to be great. But a river of water in the wilderness is going to change your life. It's going to totally alter your course. It's a source of unending life. It's a guarantee of life. This is what Jesus is promising for all of us. If you come to him, he will give you unending life by putting his spirit inside of you and flowing out of you. But some people might say, well, listen, I don't think the Lord can accept me or do that work for me. I'm too far gone. I'm too, I'm too hard of a person to really crack through. Where did Jesus get the water in the wilderness? From a rock? The most unlikeliest of sources, right? You're in the wilderness and you're thirsty. You're not turning to rocks to go, hey, listen, you got anything for me here? You're not trying to squeeze out a rock to get some water. You're going, I'm not going to find water there. It's the most unlikeliest of sources, yet that's where God provided water to show them that you're only going to get what you need by me providing it for you. This is something you're not going to find elsewhere. And, And it shows us too that however hard a person might be, however stuck a person or even you might feel like, I don't think I can experience that living water. God wants to reveal to you that He's the one that can break through the hardest of ground. The driest of hearts. God wants to break through and provide for you which you can't find in any other source other than in Jesus. This is the word for us here today. Now it's interesting that Jesus said there in verse 38 that he who believes in me as the scripture has said. Now, it's interesting as we talk about living water. Where does that talk about that in, in Scripture? Now, we know a lot of probably New Testament passages that will talk about that. But remember, they don't have the New Testament at this point. Jesus is referring to what they had in the Old Testament. Now, we're not sure exactly where Jesus was looking at or speaking of, but here's a few possibilities of references to Scripture he might be alluding to. Psalm 78, verse 15 to 16, He splits the rock in the wilderness and gave them drink in abundance like the depths. He also brought streams out of the rock and caused waters to run down, the, down like rivers. Isaiah 44, 3. This is a key one. For I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. Ezekiel 39, 29. And I will not hide my face from them anymore for I shall have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, says the Lord God. In Zechariah 14, 8. And in that day it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea in both summer and winter it shall occur. So some of that has to do geographically with a, a place that living waters can be poured out. 
But ultimately, Jesus is talking about something he's going to do inwardly, internally, personally, in the life of those that believe. And that's the key to this incredible blessing. Verse 38, he who what? Believes in me. That's the key. It takes belief. Simple as that. He who believes in me, well, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. See, there's no prerequisite. There's no necessity of a work or a payment that we need to offer to receive something as we oftentimes think we need when we talk about salvation, when we talk about receiving something from the Lord. Well, I gotta, I gotta contribute to that. I gotta earn that. That's oftentimes the, the default position that we run to. I can't, I, I can't just operate on God giving this to me by grace. I gotta work for it. I gotta earn it. But Jesus simply says, he who believes. And not just, again, that whole idea we've been studying through the Gospel of John. Not just believing with a head knowledge and and having an acknowledgement of Jesus. It's saying, I'm putting my trust in you. That you're the only one that can do this work for me. In fact, we see an, an incredible parallel passage of this invitation there in Isaiah chapter 55. It says in Isaiah 55, verse 1 to 3, Ho, everyone who thirsts. That's a weird word. It's kind of like us just calling for, we'd probably say, Yo, listen up. Yeah, right? Listen up here. Yo, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk, listen to this, without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. You see, the invitation is given. Everyone. Don't you love that? There's nobody excluded. This is open to all people. Everyone. Do you thirst? Do you have a thirst? What are you thirsting for? Come. Come to the Lord and receive it. You don't need to earn this. You don't need to pay for it. Why? And, and, and the, the question is, why are you spending your money on stuff that doesn't satisfy? It reminds me of what we read in, in Jeremiah chapter, chapter 2. I'll see if I can find it here for you. Um, yeah. In, a, in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 2. I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal, when you went after me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. No, that's not what I'm trying to say here. Where is it now? Um, Oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah, there we go. Jeremiah 2, verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And they've hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Do you see what a lot of people are doing in the world? That they're trying to gather this substance that they think is going to satisfy them. But all they end up doing is gathering water in broken cisterns. It cannot hold water. It cannot satisfy. God says to his people, you've forsaken me. You've turned against me and you've gone after other means to try to satisfy you. And in the end, it doesn't satisfy. Why are you spending money, Isaiah says, on stuff that's not going to satisfy? Come to me and receive freely, freely, of this water that I want to give you. It's an incredible offer. See, he doesn't need your money. He doesn't need your righteousness. He just wants you. Jesus just wants you to come and receive what he wants to give you. He wants you to come empty-handed, but in belief to say, Jesus, I need you to do this work that I can't do for myself. That's all he's asking you to do. Come. Come. Without any other means, without any other kind of prerequisite. Come dying if you need to, but you got to come. You got to come. Remember when Jesus said... In, in John 7, verse 34, you will seek me and not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. He's talking about when he's going to be resurrected and then go to the Father. He's telling people, listen, today's the time to receive from me to seek me. There's coming a time when you're going to miss out. It, it, it's very similar to what we read in Isaiah 55, 6. Again, this parallel passage. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. That's what we need to do. We need to come to Jesus now. 
If you don't receive his life before death, you cannot receive life after death. If you don't drink his water before you die, you're not going to be able to enjoy it or partake of it after you die. If you, if you don't come to him now, you might miss out. Seek him while he may be found. Come to him and receive this living water today. Well, how do we come to Jesus? What do we need to do? What does that look like? Well, as we read on in Isaiah 55, verse 7, it says this, Let the wicked one abandon his way, and the sinful one his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, so he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will freely forgive. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Version on that verse. It's understanding your need, your sin, that needs to be dealt with, and then you come to him in faith, And you experience that forgiveness of sin. Because he will have compassion on you, it says. I love that. We go over this in our children's ministry, our vacation Bible school. Repent, believe, and what? Forever receive. Repent, believe, and forever receive. It's quite simple. Repent is that idea of what Isaiah 55 says. Abandon his way. To turn from your way. To turn around from the direction you're going in and turn in God's direction. Look to him to do that work and put your faith in him, your trust in him for salvation and then just simply receive what he has for you. But belief is not an easy thing for many people. Let me clarify that. Everybody's going to believe something. But belief in Jesus is not a natural or easy thing for many people as we see, as we move on here. Look at verse 40. As we move now to look at these confused worshipers. Verse 40 says, Therefore many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? Now, there were many that were expecting another prophet to come on the scene. And they even had scriptural reference for that. It was in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18 and 19, which says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth and he, will, he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. So they got this verse and, and the verse is referencing, you know, I'm going to raise up another prophet like Moses. Moses was their great leader, this all-important person that they just loved. And now they're expecting, there's going to be another guy that's going to come along that's going to kind of follow in the footsteps of Moses, be another prophet like him. So they're all looking at Jesus going, this has got to be that guy. This is that prophet that was referenced in Deuteronomy 18 that's going to kind of carry on this work like Moses that's going to move us out of slavery and bondage and into that again abundant life and into freedom here. But others were saying, now that that's... I don't know that's the problem. I think this is the Christ. This has got to be the Christ. And the Christ was just simply that, that word for Messiah. The anointed one, the promised one of God. The one that they've been waiting for. This is the one, the Messiah, that's going to come and restore the kingdom of Israel. He's going to come and sit on the throne of David forever when they're going to be brought back in, ushered back into their glory days of independence. And so Israel's waiting for their Messiah to do that. They're looking at Jesus going, that's the Christ. He's the anointed one, the Messiah that we're waiting for. But then there are some that are puzzled over the origins of Jesus because they saw Jesus really as just a, a great man. They've seen him grow up for many of them. They know his, his origins. They know his roots. And it didn't mess with this thinking that the Christ would come out of, out of Galilee. They're thinking the Christ doesn't come out of Galilee. This isn't meshing with us here. Because Galilee for them was kind of backwoods. This was the country bumpkins. This is the people that you're like, that's, you know, those aren't the people that are our, our, our leaders, the ones that we really follow, right? They're kind of the uneducated ones in a sense. And so they're looking at Jesus going, the Messiah is not going to come out of Galilee. No way. That doesn't work. Plus, they had a biblical precedence for that. Look at verse 42. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. See, Micah 5.2 had that all laid out very clearly that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. They, they got the scriptures right. They just failed to see the full picture of Jesus and what he'd gone through because Jesus was born in Bethlehem. They, they missed it, right? 
He was born in Bethlehem, but then Joseph and Mary traveled to Egypt with, Drew, with Jesus to escape Herod's attempt to kill all the male babies. So they're in Egypt for a time, and then when they come back, they are residing in Nazareth, which is in Galilee. So Jesus fulfilled Micah 5 too, but he also lived in Nazareth in Galilee territory. So they're missing it. They're not putting the pieces all together. So not understanding all that went down, not understanding his origins, they're not believing him or now receiving him. And because of this, there's a great division among the people. You know, that's the way it's often going to be. Jesus is going to bring division to some degree because you either believe in him or you don't. There's no middle ground when it comes to Jesus. There's one or two sides. You either believe or you don't. In fact, look at what Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 34 to 36. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. Now we read that verse and we cringe. People look at that verse and go, oh, see, that Christianity business, that's just weird. They're a bunch of violent people. But this isn't what Jesus is talking about. He's not saying, I'm not coming to bring peace. He's saying the inevitable result of my coming to this earth is that it's going to bring division. And it's going to even divide the closest of family ties. He's going to be, he's, he's going to be so polarizing in a sense that people are going to split on their view of him. And it's going to cause even households, family units to be separated to some degree. Not that Jesus is coming to purposely do that, but because he knows that's the inevitable result of those that will not put their faith in him. So listen, don't despair over division when it comes to Christ. And, and don't try and cause it by any means. Like, don't be that guy that's like there saying, well, if you're not going to believe I'm not going to have anything to do with you, I'm cutting you off now because you're going to hell. Uh, you know, don't do that. No, we want to love those people. We want to be a good witness to them. We want to see them come to know and believe. We want to show them what life in Jesus is like. We're not coming to divide. We're not coming to separate. But the inevitable result is that Jesus is going to cause division just by people not being willing to accept him or put their trust in him. And and it's going to bring that very naturally. There's no middle ground. So pray for those people that don't believe. Don't, don't reject them. Love them. Pray for them. That they will come to see and know the truth and accept Jesus and get themselves on the, on the right side here. So we see these confused worshipers. There's great debate. There's confusion over what's going on. But now we look at this other group of people, the, the leaders, and, and we see the hardness now of these religious leaders. Look at verse 44. Now some of them wanted to take him. But no one laid hands on him. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why have you not brought him? The officers answered, No man ever spoke like this man. So there's still a desire now on behalf of these religious leaders to trap Jesus and not just silence him. They're wanting to do away with Jesus. They want to cut him off. They want to destroy him. They want to put him down. And there's been a few attempts already on his life, but he's escaped them all because why? God is overruling all the plans of man. Don't you love that? In this verse, you could kind of read it that no one laid hands on Jesus because they weren't willing because it's these officers that are coming and going, listen, no one ever spoke like this man. We're kind of conflicted here because we don't want to turn him in. He seems to be so true and authoritative. But more than that, nobody could lay a hand on Jesus because God wasn't permitting it. Because God is in control of all the affairs of man. God's the one that brings all these things into play. So we understand that God's in control here. And the same goes for us. When we're serving the Lord, we never need to have an unhealthy fear of death or the timing of our death because we're in God's hands and he's in control of all the things that are going on. And nothing is going to befall you until the appointed time. So often we can get so worried about, well, I'm not going to go there because, man, that could be really dangerous. That could really be threatening on my life. I'm not going to do that. Lord, you want me to go to that country? No, God, I can't do that. I got a family here. I got to protect myself. But do you understand that as we just follow the Lord and we live in the Lord, we're in his hands. And nothing can come upon you apart from what he 
allows and permits. In fact, George Whitefield, the great evangelist from the 1700s, said this. He said, we are immortal until our work on earth is done. Isn't that great? Don't you love that? And doesn't he look sharp? It's not great. I'm going to pick me up some of those clothes. That looks really good. But do you ever look at your life that way? I'm immortal until my work on earth is done because nothing's going to happen apart from what God allows to happen. And when I die, that's going to be the right timing for my death because God's in control. And God's in control of all things. Even when you look at the things that are going on, you think, oh my goodness, everything's falling apart. The world is just gone mad. It's just, it's just going apart here. Like, oh, what are we going to do? And we can fear and worry and think everything's getting out of control or out of Lord's hands. But understand, guess what, guys? God is still on the throne and God is still in control. And when the world seems like it's falling apart, it's just falling into place. Because God knows exactly what's coming and what he's doing and what he needs to do. And God is at work and in control. He's doing that in your own life too. Amen for that? Praise the Lord. Well, verse 47. Then the Pharisees answered them. Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Now, isn't this crazy? Because this is just now blatant peer pressure that's taking place from these religious leaders. They're just kind of exercising this religious superiority on the people. They're kind of acting in pride saying, listen, have any of us believed in him? What makes you think you're better than us by believing in him? We haven't done it, so too, you shouldn't believe in this man either. And there's exercising, it's almost like peer pressure on the people, this kind of superiority over them. As if that's the basis for what we need to do or decide on in obedience. Listen, guys, our obedience is not based on the popular choice or the majority vote. It's based on what is true according to God's word right here. Because people today are allowing the word of God to be undermined more and more. And it's a sad thing when we begin to see that happening in the church where people are saying, well, listen, you know, yeah, there's certain parts of the Bible that are inspired and authoritative but other parts that we don't really need to take literally it's written in a kind of you know hebrew sort of poetry that doesn't really imply that it's literal or speaking to the point where people now today are kind of allegorizing away adam and eve the first you know 11 chapters of genesis where this is all just kind of fables it's just it's just kind of revealing a, a bigger picture not actually that these are are real life people it wasn't really a global flood that was just symbolizing something a little bit more it, you know didn't really happen it was just a picture and people in the church you got seminaries now where you got these seminary professors that are teaching their students these very things that we we can't really take the word of god as fully true and inerrant and authoritative i mean can you imagine that so we got we got people that are being trained up for ministry that are hearing these things and they're continuing it on and saying, well, listen, I mean, that's what I was told in, in seminary. I looked up to these guys. I, I thought they were the ones that knew what was right. And so I've just listened to them. But we got to be sure that we don't follow just the majority vote or the popular view, but we follow what the word of God says. And listen, church, we can stand firm on God's word and know that everything in here is authoritative, it's inspired, and it's inerrant, meaning it is without error. You're going to hold on to that. Jesus came along and he said in Matthew 7, verse 13 and 14, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life and there are few who find it. See, if you're following the majority view or the popular vote, you may be in trouble. Because it may seem like, oh, everybody's doing it. But Jesus says, broad is the way that leads to destruction. It's going to be a very narrow way that ends in the right place, that, that, that follows that stream of truth and ends in everlasting life. It's a very narrow way. In fact, there might be times on that where you're looking around going, I feel like I'm the only person in this stream. I feel like I'm pretty alone. But Jesus says, the way is narrow. And there are few, there are few who find it. So don't, don't freak out. Don't panic if you think like, how come other people aren't? Man, the majority view. 
the popular choice is not always the right one. And when somebody comes along and says, ah, oh, well, you know, we don't really follow that book or, or listen to that authoritatively. You say, man, this is the only thing we've got to lean on. This is the only thing that we have as a standard of truth. This is God's word that's been breathed to us and is useful for teaching and, and, and rebuking and correcting, training up in righteousness. We've got to hold on to this thing. And know that this is the only standard of truth that we've got. Well, look at verse 50. Let's finish this chapter here. Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. And everyone went to his own house. Now Nicodemus, he's this... Man that we were introduced to in John chapter 3. He came to Jesus at night. He's kind of a secret follower of Jesus. But it says he's one of them. He's one of the Pharisees. He's one of this religious sect here. Now the religious leaders. But he's starting to see and know about Jesus. Remember what he said in John 3. That nobody can do the things that you do unless they're sent of God. So he's starting to realize there's more to this Jesus than just, you know, a good man. There's something true and authoritative about him so he stands up now and he says some good things he says listen let's not be so quick to judge this man and 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 this this wouldn't be right even according to their own law because every man was was allowed to have a a a fair trial to, to speak his own testimony but they weren't doing that with jesus so nicodemus is standing up saying listen let's allow this guy to to kind of speak and share let's get to know who this person is here they were doing it all wrong, but Nicodemus is standing up for him. But none of Nicodemus' peers are even close to listening to him. They just turn to mocking and scorn and say, are you also from Galilee? They're just trying to kind of rub this to him. They're like, are you one of those country guys too that just like, hey man, why don't... Like just, you're not right here. You're not thinking straight. You're like one of those followers of Jesus that were all a bunch of fishermen. We're, we're a higher class than that. Are you one of those guys from Galilee too? So they just turn to mocking. I mean, isn't it funny how that's oftentimes how people will respond when you try to share just the truth with them. They don't want to hear it. They just want to shut it down. And the way that they shut it down oftentimes is they just turn to mocking, to ridicule, to scorn. Because they got, they got no answers. They don't, want to, they don't want to debate. They don't want to hear. They just want to silence the truth. And these religious leaders are doing the exact same thing here. And with these religious leaders... They only show their own ignorance of the very scriptures that they were claiming to be upholding. They say, there's been no prophet that's come out of Galilee. But they were failing to remember what 2 Kings 14.25 says. He he restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he had spoken through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer, which is in Galilee. So Jonah... And isn't that great? Because isn't Jonah a great picture of what Jesus did who was swallowed by fish and Jesus himself says as Jonah was in the fish for three days so the Son of Man must be in the heart of the earth for three days and yet will rise again. Isn't that great how it all fits together? And so Jesus, you know, revealing, listen, there are people, prophets that came from Galilee. Jonah is one of them. And he was a great picture of what Jesus was going to do. And so at this point, we read in verse 53 that everyone went back to his home. The, the feast is over. It's all taking place on the last day of the feast. So everybody starts to depart. Remember, a lot of people are coming, traveling from distant lands and, and, and different areas outside Jerusalem. So everybody's returning back to their home now. But we see this kind of split now in the opinion of Jesus. There are some believing and there are some that aren't. The religious leaders continue to really make it hard for people to come and receive Jesus as Lord. But I'm so grateful that Jesus doesn't complicate things. People might. Religion complicates things. But Jesus doesn't complicate this whole way of coming to him. In fact, going back to that first passage that we looked at here today, verses 37-39, I just want to look at these a little bit more because within those verses we have a great just requirement of salvation this is this ultimate invitation of jesus to come to him but here's requirements of salvation first of all jesus says if anyone thirsts if anyone thirsts 
See, people need to have that realization that they are empty without Jesus. And there is that thirst that exists in every life that can only be quenched through a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what we're created for. There are people that are looking for happiness, satisfaction, as we said, in all the wrong places. They're looking because they're, they're not satisfied in themselves. They know that they need more. But that only comes through Jesus. So people need to see the need, first of all. Are you thirsty? Secondly, Jesus says, let them come to me. People need to take that, that next step of coming to the Savior. See, the work is done. Jesus has provided for your salvation by dying on a cross. He died on a cross to pay the penalty for your sin, the very sin that separates you from God to begin with. He died on a cross to pay the penalty for your sin, that all those that believe in him might now have life. But he says, I've done the work, now come to me. And for some, that's, that's a hard step. Because again, it means I need help. Men need to be, people need to be stripped of their pride and come humbly and say, I need help. I'm coming to you. And then they need a drink. It's not just enough to, to know that there's a need. Not just enough to, to come to Jesus. Now we need to receive what he's given to us, what he's given to us freely. We need a drink of that. Psalm 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Just as we saw in John chapter uh, chapter 6, where Jesus talked about, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. In other words, take me in. You won't have life. It's in taking in Jesus and, and participating in what he's given you, receiving that for yourself, that you can have life. We drink it up and press in with him and experience the joy of life in him. And this joy comes ultimately from the filling of the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus was talking about more than just finding a good, satisfying beverage and partaking of this living water. He's talking about the blessing we receive by being filled with the Holy Spirit. John alludes to that because John is writing this much later now, the, the, the latest written gospel, long after Jesus uh, died, rose again, and ascended to the Father. So John has seen now the result of Jesus going to the Father. That's why he says... This wasn't, the spirit wasn't given yet because Jesus was not yet glorified, meaning Jesus hadn't ascended to the Father yet. But when he did, the Holy Spirit would be poured out. John witnessed that, he saw it. And he saw the fruit of the Spirit being poured out. And you see, that's what we need as believers. We need to be not just filled with the spirit but we need to be overflowing in the spirit this is a double work that takes place in our lives you see the bible says that when we come to a saving faith in christ that we're filled with the spirit ephesians 1 verse 13 to 14 says in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation in whom also having believed you were sealed with the holy spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory as believers when we come to faith in Jesus, we're born again, the Holy Spirit is in us. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us and it's, it's that seal of God, that, that guarantee of more to come. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 1.22 talks about that as well. But there's also a subsequent work of the Holy Spirit to where he not only fills us, but where he now overflows in us. And we see that with the disciples. Interestingly, in John 20, Verse 21 and 22, Jesus has been crucified. He's risen again and he goes and he meets with his disciples and he says to them, peace to you. As the father sent me, I also send you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now I believe it was at that time that the disciples were truly born again. They've been following Jesus. They've been tracking with him. But now Jesus has done the work. He's secured that work of salvation. And now he breathes on them the Holy Spirit. I believe that's the point of conversion truly for the disciples. They're born again because now the Holy Spirit is dwelling in them. Receive the Holy Spirit. He breathes on them and now they're filled. There's that new life at work just like, like 2 Corinthians 5 talks about. Old things have passed. We build all things have become new. So now they're saved, born again. But then he says something else to them later on. He says, I want you to go to Jerusalem and wait. Wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. He says in Acts 1.8, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. 
See, that would be the difference now for the disciples. Not only would they have the the spirit in them, as all believers do, but Jesus says there's going to be a follow-up work where I'm going to pour the Holy Spirit upon you, this word epi, overflowing, and it's then that you'll have power. In the Greek, it's that word dunamis, where we get our word dynamite. Because the disciples are getting ready to be called out, sent out to carry on the work of Jesus. And I'm sure everybody's looking at them, and I'm sure the disciples were looking at each other going, "Uh, what, Jesus, you want us? To finish the work, to carry on the work that you're doing? Have you seen us? We can't do it. And Jesus is like, yeah, I know. You can't. But I'm going to empower you. I'm going to give you the source of power through the Holy Spirit. That's not just going to be in you, but it's going to overflow in you when you receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, you can call that the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the overflowing. I don't care what title you put on it. It's the necessity in the life of the believer. It's what we all need to live this life for Jesus and to live as a witness of Jesus. You see, that whole picture of the Feast of Tabernacles, again, coming through the promised land, what a great picture that was because God was leading them through, but where was the ultimate goal? Was in the promised land. They've gone through the wilderness, but that wasn't the place that God had for them. He wanted to bring them in the promised land, but it took 40 years. 40 years to kind of weed out the flesh. And even then, there were some people that decided, I don't want to enter in. That looks too much for me. I'm going to hang back on the outskirts. Listen, they were still Israel. They were still the tribes of Israel. They were still part of the family of God. But guess what? They missed out from going into the promised land, which is a picture, not of heaven and eternity as some hymns love to sing it's a picture of the spirit-filled life walking in the fullness and the abundance of life that god has for each and every one of us that comes through the filling of the holy spirit and there were some that decided i'm not going to go in they're still saved they're still part of the family of god but they became the tribes that were more quicker to get picked off by enemies and to fall into idolatry and sin And so the question for us is, is the Holy Spirit not just dwelling in you today? Are you being filled, overflowing? Is there rivers of water that are flowing out of your life? I think it's a great illustration here where, see, every believer, we've got the Holy Spirit poured into us. All of us have. That is believers in Christ putting our faith in Jesus. We have the Holy Spirit in us. But we know that we're still kind of grappling with the flesh, right? And, and we've got things like, you know, anger. We've got struggles with, you know, um, uh, jealousy or, or, you know, different areas of, of sin at work in our lives. And some of us can have a lot of it. Some of us can have a little bit of it. But you see, man, we're still struggling oftentimes with the flesh in our lives. And we sit here and we go, man, there's such a dichotomy at work here. I I know I want to be walking in the things of the Spirit, but I'm struggling with the flesh all the more. Oftentimes what we do is we sit there and we focus on, how do I get rid of this? What do I need to do? And we're eyeing these works of the flesh and we're going, what do I need to do? And yet what Jesus is saying is, I need to be filled with the Spirit. Because as you're filled with the Spirit, not just the Spirit dwelling in you, but you're being filled with the Spirit to overflowing now what happens is that there's just no room for that flesh any longer. And it just begins to pour out. And it begins to remove all those things that are supposed to not be there as the Holy Spirit. That's supposed to flow out of there. Let me help it. I'm just helping the Holy Spirit here. You don't need to do that usually. But but you see, this living water that Jesus wants to give us, it's this water that's just now flowing out. And as it's flowing out of you, there's less of you. You don't have to worry about the flesh. You don't have to think about how I deal with this. It's now, I just want more of the Holy Spirit in me. I'm not just content just to have a taste and a drink and to say, yes, I'm a child of God, the Spirit's dwelling in me, but I want this subsequent work where the Holy Spirit is just overflowing in me to where now when I'm meeting with people, talking to people, they're not seeing me. This stuff is all gone now. They're just seeing the Holy Spirit at work, the fruit of the Spirit taking place. See, Ephesians 5.18 says, do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And in the Greek, it's written in a way that it implies be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. This isn't a one-time thing, my friends. This isn't something we say, oh, I remember back in camp, back in, you know, 1984, man, oh, I had a great experience with the Holy Spirit. Boy, I was filled. That's great. But what about today? 
What about yesterday? Are you continually being filled? What's going on in your heart? What's flowing out of you today? Is there rivers of living water flowing out of you? That doesn't get manufactured by ourselves, by good living. It doesn't get manufactured by religious works. That's a, a work supernaturally by the Spirit. And the Bible says that if you being good fathers know, or earthly fathers know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those that ask Him? You see, we don't have to labor for this. Some people have had ideas about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and you got to really strive for it or, or there's going to be signs of this or that that give the evidence of it. I don't believe we need to labor after this. I believe just as salvation is something we ask for and receive by faith, being filled with the Holy Spirit is something we ask for and we receive by faith. He's a good father and he gives good things to those that ask. Are you asking? Are you asking daily, Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit? I need to ask that Every day I wake up before I even get out of bed. Lord, fill me today. Fresh and new the Holy Spirit. I want living water to be pouring out of my life. I want my daily interaction with the people for them to be left seeing you, Jesus, and not me. That's what the Spirit does. And we need that today. Where's your thirst level at today? Are you thirsting for more, Jesus? What's flowing out of your heart? Is it something that resembles more of a, a ditch in the flesh? Or is it living water, the work of the Spirit? Who do you say that Jesus is? Because that response has eternal ramifications. Don't go with the crowd. Be resolved in your heart who Jesus is and abide in Him. Abiding in Him. Jesus says, if you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. What's the fruit? Galatians 5, fruit of the Spirit. We don't get that unless we're abiding in Jesus and asking, Lord, fill me fresh and anew. Weed out all that flesh in me that so often hinders that work. Just come in and pour into me. Are you thirsty today? The answer is yes. But where are you going to satisfy that thirst? Are you turning to Jesus? Because he wants to give you living water. Come to him today and drink. And we're going to do that. I want to encourage you. We're going to just close in a song, but I want you to take this time, not to be in a rush to get out of here, but to take this time and seek the Lord and ask Him to pour into you fresh and anew today and ongoing. Maybe there's things you need to deal with. You need to take to the Lord today and say, Jesus, man, I've got this issue that's just been holding me back. I've been camping out on the wrong side of the promised land and I've not been entering in. Lord, I want to enter in today. I want the fullness of life that you have for me. I want the filling of the Spirit that leads me into the fullness and abundance of life today. So let's stand together and let's take this time just to seek the Lord and ask Him to do that work in us here today.